Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Spirituality and Mindfulness. I'm Silas Day, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Yale Shai about her new book, What Now? Meditation for Your 20s and Beyond. What Now is a lovely guide for anyone of any age, but if found in your 20s or even before, it could lead to a much smoother existence day to day. It provides the necessary insight, wisdom, and understanding that is needed in the journey to living a peaceful, clear, and grounded existence. Yale spares no expense in sharing personal stories and anxieties to connect you to those parts that trouble us all. Yale, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Uh, I wonder if you could begin the interview, it's kind of a tradition around here at New Books, by telling us a bit about yourself, some of your influences, or uh, where you came from to get to this point. Sure. Um, Well, I was born in Los Angeles, and my mother's actually a rabbi, so I was uh, maybe destined to do something in the spiritual world. Um, and then fast forward a lot, I grew up, as I was growing up, I'm one of five kids and it was, you know, a loving home, but I had, I was very easily kind of overlooked and I had a lot of anxiety. And so that just kind of um, set a lot of the groundwork for by the time I got to college, I was very, very anxious. I was carrying around a lot of kind of unexamined pain and um, and just difficulty in figuring out who I was and what the world, what, what my place was in the world. And I went to college at New York University. Um, where I work now. And when I was there, uh, it happened to be my junior year of college when 9-11 happened. And so I also had quite a lot of uh, trauma from that event and from kind of feeling like I was going to die that day. And so all of that kind of bubbled up and built up. My parents announced they were getting a divorce that year. My boyfriend had broken up with me. And I never left Judaism. I was always like interested in Judaism, but I never figured out a way to have Judaism like kind of address some of these more deeper spiritual questions and um, and personal pains. And so around that time, I was just melting down. I was having a lot of panic attacks. I was having a lot of difficulty and I found out um, through my mother, actually, that there was a meditation retreat happening uh, later that year in upstate New York. And I had never meditated before, as, apart from, you know, little tiny. Wait, wait, so you're telling me you went to a week-long meditation retreat without any experiencing experience meditating before? Yes. That is so crazy to me. <laughs> <laughs> I really had absolutely no idea what I was getting into. Um, it just sounded, you know, relaxing and that it would be in the country and it would be very like like a spa. 
And, uh, and so I went and I just, I fully did not understand that it was going to be seven days of silence that we weren't going to be able to talk to anyone, that it was going to be like no eye contact. And it was this pure meditation from the morning until the evening. So how, how would you say that has affected your meditation as a whole, starting at such a, a point that most people don't get into until years later? I mean, you, you just jumped right in with two feet. Right. Um, you know, it's funny because people have asked me since then, do you think I should go on a retreat people who haven't had much experience with meditation. And I don't really know what to say because I'm so grateful I went. It was absolutely life transforming. And in some ways, maybe it was actually better for me to just jump right in that way because I didn't have any preconceptions. I, um, you know, and I stuck through the retreat past the first three days, which can be the hardest for those of you that are thinking about going on a meditation retreat. Um, and the, the end of the retreat is really when things started to crack open for me. So I don't know if I'd recommend it because it is like a very, very big jump. But for me, it was exactly what I needed. It was really powerful, although the first couple of days were definitely torture. So after that experience, did you pick up a day-to-day practice of meditation uh, directly afterwards or or did it leave you a little jarred? Uh, what did your uh, day-to-day practice look like right after that as it compares to your day-to-day practice right now? It took me a while to develop a daily practice, uh, maybe even like five or six years And the reason is, even though I had high hopes, I definitely didn't leave the retreat jarred at all. I left the retreat feeling more um, in touch with myself, more understanding of my anxiety and difficulty and more like alive than I ever had before. Um, So I thought after the retreat, I would, you know, start meditating daily. But I think it took me a while to uh, shift from this sense of meditation as like, something I should really do, like going to the gym a lot or something like that. Right. And, uh, and also to get through the, the initial voices that plagued not just my meditation, but my everyday life that would tell me like, you're not doing it right. Your mind is wandering so much. You're such a failure. You're so bad at this. And that was so unpleasant that I didn't want to keep practicing. It just felt awful. Um, so I would continue to go on meditation retreats every year, but I didn't didn't wasn't able to kind of figure out how to have a practice that was loving and caring and actually extremely nurturing rather than like a, a thing I needed to cross off on my to do list right. for a while. Um, so what started to lead you to write what now? Like what prompted you to sit down and really write out this manuscript for people? Um, the actual direct prompt was that some uh, an acquisitions editor at the publisher had read some other stuff that I had written and had asked if I wanted to do a proposal and then begin writing. But I think on the kind of personal level, I wanted to write something for a long time um, specifically for people young people going through a lot of transitions and trying to find their way because that's when I found meditation. And it's also 
the primary audience I work with at NYU. Um, and, and there wasn't a whole lot out there that I could see that was um, translating a lot of these beautiful Buddhist and, you know, uh, spiritual concepts to these younger life experiences, to the very concrete day-to-day experiences of someone in their 20s and 30s. Um, so while I think the book is applicable to everyone, it was definitely out of that motivation of trying to help a younger me and trying to help the people I see every day uh, with these practices. So that that was really why I wanted to write it. Right. It's the Lotus Sutra and the Heart Sutra contain a lot of good wisdom, but for your average, you know, 20 something nowadays, they may not be able to connect with it, you know, as soon as they read it instead of more pertinent examples or explanations. Right. Exactly. And I don't think that means, I mean, I think that people in their twenties can definitely get those sutras, but there, it just, um, it's not maybe you have to kind of do a little bit of the translation work. Besides how the, the, the personal connection to sitting down and write this book and the person coming to you and saying, Hey, do you want to jump in and do it? Why did you make your first chapter about suffering? You know, you, you aren't crazy and you aren't alone. You say, uh, why do you think that people feel alone or feel crazy by being so caught up in their own sufferings or hindrances? It's mm, a good question. I think because we don't have a broader framework in at least American society where people tell you that. I remember when um, when I was in college, I just felt I was lonely all the time. And I felt com- very much like, am I the only one battling all of this? What I saw on TV shows was like, and what I what I really heard echoed everywhere was like, this is college. It's the greatest time of your life. You're free and it's wonderful and it's amazing. And I, I was having some interesting and some nice experiences, but I was not feeling that like, this is the greatest time of my life. Um, I was feeling very lost and lonely. And so I think we don't have a lot of that kind of messaging out there that says like, it's not just that you're not alone. It's not just that this is very common. What the Buddha says is that this is an ascent. This is a mark of existence. Like this is common to everything that exists. Um, a, A certain misunderstanding or certain framework for how suffering operates in the world. And so I I think that's why it was kind of revolutionary for me to to really understand that and just tremendously liberating to be like this is not a character flaw the fact that we um you know deny we pretend like there's there's not such a thing as impermanence or we think that we're separate from every other thing and that we grasp after you know, pleasure and we push away pain. This is not like a failing. It's, it's what being alive often is. Unfortunately, it also leads to a lot of suffering. Um, it really is suffering at its core. And so I think that's why I put it first. I think that it was like a framework that really was helpful to me to opening all of the rest of the questions up. 
Cool. I, I, I agree. I always think that is a, a really good place to start when talking about meditation, mindfulness, or any kind of spiritual path is how the, the basis of our human existence influences and talk, is talked about in that spiritual path. Um, yes. I really enjoyed your second chapter, Learning to Meditate, because of all the different meditation guides that I've read, it seemed like one of the more concrete and easily accessible. Um, I, I think it lacked a lot of the analogy that some of the direct translation from the East sometimes have. Um, why? Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, <laughs> why did you approach meditation in that way? Or, or how did you come to approach meditation in that way? When you say, you know, direct translation, do you mean like some of the more uh, like uh, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali or the, the early Dhammapada or just any of the guides that come from the East of meditation. I, I think that you really connect with a Western meditator for or a Westerner that doesn't have any context of what meditation or how to do it is. And I, I was just curious how you came about to approach meditation that way. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe it's it's been a benefit to me that I have a lot of skeptics in my life, meditation skeptics, people I am not surrounded by, you know, a lot of yoginis and yogis. And so, um, so I think for, oh, for most of my time since I've started teaching these practices, I had to um, surmount some skepticism or even just more um, some – just like that, a lot of that kind of flowery, um, your mind is a pond with ripples and you're the sky and things like that. I think it's just, there's a lot of that out there already. So I tried to, and I think this is just the way that I tend to teach is like, I tried to first bring it a little bit down to the day to day experience, the daily experience, and also to talk about what happens a lot when we first start to try and find a place of stillness. Um, because like I mentioned, it stopped me for so long, that sense that I was doing everything wrong and that I was failing and that, that somehow I was you know, not following the proper instructions. So I tried as much as possible to talk directly, to be really clear, and then also to keep saying you may think you're doing it wrong, but you're really not. This is really the way the practice goes. This is just the way your mind operates. I think the other thing is I'm kind of, I've kind of been myself personally a little bit annoyed at the widespread kind of selling of meditation as this way, this pretty much purely this way to calm down. I mean, I do think it helps people calm down for sure, but for me, it was just so much. I mean, it meant, sometimes it doesn't actually calm me down. Sometimes it's like kind of agitating to look at your own mind and look at your own heart and to really un try and understand how it all works. So I think I'm also kind of re responding perhaps to that um, very common way of uh, trying to use meditation as a tool to just kind of, I don't know, make us all. Yes, just purely for de-stressing. I understand. We have a very stressed out society, but I think that there's so much more in there. Right. Uh, I really liked the way that you described um, 
in a way to embrace the failure as a part of the meditation and that even though you think you're failing, that's actually what meditation is. It's the, you know, the scrubbing of the brain and the working with that agitation and those things that come up is that's the, the, one of the valuable parts of it is the ability to sit down and do that. Totally. It's like the juice. It's the, it's the, 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 I think the interesting stuff. So talk to me a little about mindfulness in between. Mm-hmm. What do you think of mindfulness or, or how is it in the context of your book? Yeah. Um, so it's, for me, I think that like we live life in the in-between. And what I mean by that is the in-between our formal sitting meditation sessions. Um, and uh, there, it was, it's been a long journey of really getting this idea of like, what if, in everything that we did all the time, we could really infuse a sense of presence into it and actually live the life we're living all the time without a break, without kind of floating away into daydreaming about the future or reliving the past, or if we're doing that, just being aware of it. Um, And it's constantly, it's actually an ongoing practice for me to really try and get this message of how life would change if I could really do this. And the more that I do it, the more I bring it into really trying to taste my food, really being present with my kid or my friends and trying to be there when I'm having a conversation and actually listening to the person or walking down the street, really whatever it is the more that I'm bringing myself to it and being like, this is it. This is, I mean, maybe there's other lives, but I don't know. I know for sure I have this one. Right. It's, there's a little sadness in it that I find because I often realize like, oh, there's so much of this that I'm missing scrolling through my Instagram or doing something else. And it doesn't mean that those things are bad, but when I really try to bring my attention back, I just kind of, experience life in such a different way. And so that's what I'm trying to write about in that section of the book. How can we do that in all these in-between times? How can we bring the mind back to full concentration and uh, living and experiencing life for its fullest in this very moment? Exactly. And that might include, I mean, what the, the trouble or the problem with that is that this moment might have some pain in it, or it might have some sadness or, you know, longing and, and that's real, but, um, but really even experiencing those things is even better than constantly trying to just, just, or, you know, succeeding at distracting myself from them, um, through whatever means and then feeling, and then feeling alienated from life and feeling like life gets like stale and dry and, you know, months pass in that kind of an alienated place. And so, so yeah, trying to, trying to come back. So with that in mind, your, your next chapter is called feeling emotions, not being emotions. Um, you know, when I was first looking at this, I thought, you know, how can I experience the motion of anger or how can I experience the motion of happiness as almost as an outside observer, because that's the only way that I thought I could experience it. How do you say 
that you can feel your emotions, but you don't have to let them overcome you. Yeah, I think you're right. That part of it is is as an observer, um, but that might that observer isn't um, like in a rarefied space, hovering above the emotion while the emotion is happening. That observer is feeling like, oh, this hurts. This I can I can feel this in the chest. I can feel this in the belly. Like this just feels like I'm underneath a wave of something. And so it's an observer with all of your senses rather than, you know, just as a watcher outside of it. And the reason why, but it is also just retaining that sense of awareness, like I am not my anger, but anger really is here right now. And this is what it feels like. And so it's um, this kind of dance of trying really hard to recognize and accept the emotions that are coming through us, but then also um, really trying to keep enough spaciousness so that uh, we can get insights out of it, so that we can look for wisdom that comes out of it, and that we can let it go when it comes time for the emotion to move on. With that, would you say that if, if I'm getting pissed off in traffic at someone, how could I take that moment and step back from it and use it to aid in my meditation. So yes, you're in traffic and you're going to be late to something you want to get to and someone's you off and you're really pissed and you just feel that like initial surge of just like, ah, this, you know, jerk or worse word. (laughs) And so if you can take that moment and be like, whoa, here is a moment of real anger. Like, what does this feel like in my body? First of all, let's recognize anger is here. And I keep trying to say that we, I think we need to say it like that to say it's here rather than to saying I'm angry, just to really start to condition ourselves to understand that it's A, it probably won't be there forever. And B, again, it's not all of who we are. So that's how we begin with that kind of R for recognize um, in the in the RAIN acronym that I use. And then to say, like, how do I know? How do I know I'm angry? If I were had to, like, tell a scientist or a doctor somewhere, then I feel like this burning feeling in my throat or I feel, you know, all of this agitation in my body and I can feel like just this urge to want to hurt this person or to hurt someone and, you know, just really feel it, letting that wash through the body, all of those physical sensations of what's happening. And in the RAIN acronym, there's RA for accepting, and then there's I for inquiry. So that's when, you know, after you've breathed for a little while and you've noticed anger is here, here's where it is in the body, you can really kind of gently ask yourself the question, is there something underneath this anger? Is there some other feeling that's right here, right alongside it? And usually for me, there's some kind of sense of like powerlessness or um, a sense that somebody's like trampling my boundary. There's a story that's an old story that's connected there that is, you know, very deep and very painful right underneath the surface of that anger. And so just kind of being like, oh, that's this, that's this old storyline. That's this old friend of mine that I know or that I've seen before. Maybe I haven't seen before, but wow, that 
that kind of deserves looking at and understanding a little bit better. So that's the eye for that gentle inquiry of like, what is going on? What's underneath? What's, what's this anger trying to tell me aside from this person is a jerk? <laughs> what else is there? Um, and then the last one is N. And uh, I like to use the interpretation of the N in rain being nourish, which is like, okay, what can I do in this? What's the most nourishing thing in this situation when I'm having this like really strong feeling? Because I'm the truth is I'm not, hopefully, not going to go and hurt this person, um, especially now that I've understood that this is about something much larger than this person. Um, and just sitting here with the anger is not going to hurt them, even though somewhere in my mind I probably think it is. It's just hurting me. So what can I do in this moment to just nourish myself? And maybe in that traffic moment, it's like taking a deep breath or putting on a music that you like, or just kind of like being there and breathing. Maybe it's, um, you know, I don't know, noticing what's around you, noticing what's out the window, whatever it is for you that might be like, this is a moment when I can really try and take care of myself instead of like just giving this precious moment of my life over to this random other person that just cut me off. Right. It's a lot like the Buddha said, you know, getting angry is like holding a hot coal. You're just going to burn yourself. Exactly. Right. Or the old like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Right. Exactly. Um, it's of your own nature that it arises. So it's only going to hurt you. Um, so your next chapter is called Mindful Relationships. And I think this is my favorite chapter out of the entire book because of just how pertinent it is to our modern day society and especially to our young people of how to be in a, you know, caring, successful and well-meaning relationship with other people. And I'd love for you to expound on that a little. Sure. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot to have trying to have mindful relationships. I definitely don't think I've, um, enlightened into that one fully. I think I'm just, you know, exploring it constantly. And what I write about in that book is about the more that we really try and uh, understand ourselves and bring compassion and real acceptance to all parts of ourselves, the, the better, the more open we will be to relationships, the more that we will be able to be present to other people in relationships including and just being able to actually see the people who were who were either in relationships with or we want to be in relationships with um so it's it's a it's a big deep practice of trying to bring these kinds of practices into a relationship with another person but so important um and i talk about i give a lot of personal examples in this section about how the things i really kind of didn't like in myself, I had a really, I would either project them onto partners and, or I would try and get, get an answer from another person about myself. Was I really lovable? Well, this person, if this person thinks I am, then I am. But if this person thinks I'm not, then I must not be, which is of course a really terrible way to understand whether or not you're lovable. <laughs> it's, you know, really problematic, but it happens all the time. Um, and then bringing that also into just like our sexual relationships, 
really trying to um, be present in sexual relationships, being, being present with our own bodies, our own urges, and um, and sitting right in the middle of some of the most uncomfortable, most shame-filled or vulnerable places um, in sex or in relationships, and still trying from that place to be strong enough and brave enough to risk into love or sex or connection of some kind. Yeah, that's one thing that I really appreciated uh, about this chapter and the book overall is just how open, honest, and humble you were about these topics that sometimes don't get addressed in other meditation books, that uh, there are these feelings and these experiences that we all have and that we shouldn't be you know, ashamed of having them and they shouldn't cause us trouble and that we have the capability to step back and look at them or just be with them and uh, try and understand them for exactly what they are. Um, yeah, I think I, I struggled because I remember at one, at one point I, I was in one breakup that was, you know, wrecking me as most of them did. And I went to Barnes and Noble specifically and went to the kind of Buddhist section and went to the self-help section and was like, I don't know what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for like a book that will, that is like about, you know, change, you can change yourself and, become better. And I knew I wasn't looking for just, you know, like a very dense Buddhist tract written by a celibate monk. I was looking for something that could really address all of this pain of the breakup. Um, And so that's, I think, again, it's like sort of that's what I wanted to write for is that those like very human everyday moments and how much these practices helped me uh, and continue to help me to try and, um, ease the suffering and the difficulties around them. Uh, you know, as interesting as the celibates may be, I think they're a little hard to connect to in the modern age. On these um, topics especially, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Coming from a different culture and a different mindset and a different philosophy, sometimes the, the connections can be hard to make. Yeah, although, uh, yeah, I definitely have found some great things there, but yes, I think so too. So changing the world without burning out. Talk to me a little about this. I I found this chapter very intriguing uh, just on its own basis, but I'd love to hear you talk about it. Sure. Um, Well, I think I know that for me, um, for a lot of my students and also for me, that was a a real essential kind of question and uh, tricky place in my life. Um, How does how does all of this sitting and learning to love, love ourselves and um, meditation practices, like how does it play out when we live in a world that is like deeply um, divided and, and where people are living under oppression constantly and we can feel, we can tend to feel either like extremely passionate, especially in our twenties and thirties of like, it's, it's, I have to change the world. I have to do something about this. And very quickly burning out and being like, wow, I have no power. I have no control. I'm losing all the time. Um, nothing is going the way that I want it to. These bad people are winning everything. And so then there's this kind of like flip into nothing matters and I don't matter and who cares about justice. And so just kind of living in that kind of confusion and difficulty around 
the wider world that we're all a part of and the desire that I think a lot of people in this age demographic feel to try and, and create um, a more just society. Um, I believe that there's a very powerful and strong place for mindfulness and Buddhist wisdom right there in that, in that difficulty in figuring out how to make change and how to do so on a, a societal level. It's not easy, but I think really important. Do you think that the same lessons could be applied to a personal practice where, you know, w- would it be more fruitful to sit down every morning for the first few months and meditate for 30 minutes, becoming comfortable with that beginning 30 minutes of meditation instead of trying to violently progress and say, you know, I'm going to sit down every day and meditate for eight hours? Like, totally. Yes. I think it works both ways. I think the more just like in relationships, because social justice is a form of, um, you know, it's a larger form of relationships, but it's also, it's all like a fractal, like the larger, um, the larger change we're trying to make has to reflect the, the individual change we're trying to make and vice versa. Another way of saying it is how you do anything is how you do everything. So if you're being violent to yourself in your own meditation practice and saying like, you know, you, I'm going to beat this person out of you. I'm going to like really conquer this evil part of myself, then you're going to suffer a lot. And the same way that if we're in our politics being like, those are the evil people, we hate them. We're the good people. We should win. Um, it's going to lead to more suffering and more division and more violence. And so we have to, the one is completely reflective of the other one. So a lot of that chapter is really about trying to um, piece through how do you be, how do you be like the change you want to see in the world? Like Gandhi said, how do you, how do we take that impulse and really look at where the evil um, the desire to kind of scrub out a part of ourselves and can we turn to that self with love and then turn in the wider world to our quote enemies also with love, which is the most powerful energy source for transformation and for change. Right. It's learning not to, uh, it's reminding me of an early, earlier part of your book where you said you were trying to attack these things that came up at you with an ice pick, you know, where Right. You, yeah, you're, you're trying to almost draw a line between, well, this is me versus myself in a way where instead you needed to do it compassionately and gently and with understanding to yourself and those things that came up. Right. And every, I mean, all of my heroes of, of justice in the world really deeply understood that they really deeply understood that, that, you know, it's, it's one and the same. You can't, Audrey Lord said, you can't deconstruct the master's house using the master's tools. And in that case, the master being the tools being violence and division. So we have to, you have to find a different way to, um, to, tra- to, to transform. And I think that way is really love and acceptance. So, my hair is on fire, but everything is okay. Yes. <laughs> Why is it okay that my hair is on fire? It's not. Um, and yet it is. It's, that's the paradox. It's, 
it's that things are, um, you know, that on there's two truths. This is like a very Buddhist concept that there's two truths happening at all times. One truth is the relative and that's where your hair is on fire. And that's where, um, you know, there's problems and there's difficulties and there's suffering and you have to get, you have to work on that suffering right away to expend a lot of labor and energy. And then there's this other truth and it's happening at the exact same time where um, really every single piece is part of the whole and everything was set in motion by um, a series of arisings and fallings that's happened way before you were born and we're all part of this cosmos and everything is absolutely okay in that realm. And you can touch that realm right in the middle of when your hair is on fire. So it's this kind of, it breaks the mind to think about it because it doesn't seem like it makes any sense, but it's, it's that kind of paradox that's at the heart of a lot of, um, of this practice really of this life. Um, is it a discussion on like the interdependent nature of all things, how, you know, no two things are separated. Like just because your hair is on fire doesn't mean you can't work towards being a better person. Oh, you may not ever be able to put out the fire of your hair. That doesn't mean you can't accept it and learn from it and live with it. Yeah. I think that's a nice way of saying it too. Um, or that, you know, that there are, that we're all living in an ocean and we are all the water of the ocean and, but we're also the waves. And so what will never stop being the water, that interconnected, complete whole um, happening at the exact same time as we're also having our own little wave existence. And it's important to, um, to grow to love and understand that wave and um, in all of its aspects. So another way of saying it. Uh, what was it? I think Alan Watts put it that uh, we are a wave, a part of the ocean. You know, the, the single wave is still an aspect of the entire ocean, but in itself, it is still a single wave. That's beautiful. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so your book, What Now? Absolutely incredible. What Now? Meditations for Your 20s and Beyond by Miss Yale Shai here. Um, I, I just have a few more questions that don't particularly pertain to the book, but I think that here on spirituality and mindfulness, um, we like to talk about how we can improve our day-to-day practice and how I can bring a day-to-day practice into my life. Um, I know you are a teacher. You teach at NYU, right? Yes. Uh, I run the Spiritual Life Center, but I also teach courses there. Yes. What um, would you say is some good bits of advice or just advice that you give to your students or people about developing their spiritual practice? Um, I think I would say a, a little begin wherever you can. So even a little bit every day counts. And the science tells us that five minutes a day can start to have an effect on your brain and your life. So the first thing is, you know, if you if you really are serious about this and you really want it to to enhance your practice and to grow in your life, then um, try and set aside just a little bit of time every day and 
um, mark it, write it, get it into your schedule so that it's for real. It's not just the kind of thing you do if you have time or if it suits you because anything that's at least for me, not in my schedule doesn't tend to happen. Um, and then bring this tremendous amount of compassion to yourself uh, at the same time as you're really trying to build in this discipline. So it's a balance. Um, like we talked about, really understanding that any that a lot of mind wandering and a lot of daydreaming is not a failure and that it's kind of like going to the gym. You don't go to the gym and immediately, um, you know, I don't know, run a marathon. You, you probably shouldn't. It's dangerous. <laughs> um, you train. And so that's what this is. It's a kind of a training. And as you continue to practice, as you, it, it will continue. It will have a, a positive effect on your life. Even if for the entire period of time you were meditating, you were just thinking of other things and really having a hard time focusing. Um, keep, keep at it and see how things start to change and you start to gain a sense of spaciousness and understanding about your own life. Yale, I, I've taken up a good amount of your time and I know you're a very busy lady, but I, I'll just ask you one final question here. What projects are you working on next? What are you thinking of coming up with? Do you have any upcoming interviews or just anything in general that you're working on? Yeah. Well, I am about two weeks away from having another baby. So wow. that's a congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's a little bit of a different kind of a project. Um, but uh, that's happening. And so I'm, uh, I just did I, the podcast I just did with, um, I was on the 10% happier podcast and that just came out and um, was, uh, and has started to make me think in, about other kinds of ways to reach um sort of that like larger mainstream audience through um, all kinds of different ways. And I've, I've had the chance to write a bunch of articles in connection to the book as it was coming out. And so I'm just, I'm starting to sort of think about how to, how to reach more people, perhaps putting some of the lessons of the book into a curriculum for college professors or administrators that are interested in adopting it into uh, a, a kind of a daily curriculum. So I'm thinking about that and all kinds of other stuff. But but for now, really just trying to um, prepare my life for a tiny little baby. Yes. Well, that sounds like quite the projects to be working on at once. And I'm sure it is an interesting experience trying to be mindful and almost two weeks from having a baby at the same time. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's amazing. Just I don't know how much of my own, uh, like, when you talk about being an observer of your emotions, I mean, my emotions are everywhere these days. And I don't know how much of it is just crazy amount of hormones and how much of it is real. <laughs> but it's very, very interesting. It's definitely a place to practice. All righty. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And I really enjoyed our conversation. Have a thank good evening. Thanks, Silas.